Welcome to the New York City Bar Association podcast. In this episode, what to make of it, the great AI retooling. Heather Hatcher and Roland Trope sat down with Anthony E. Davis of Council at Clyde & Co. U.S. and an international expert on professional responsibility. They talked about how artificial intelligence tools are going to change the landscape of legal services. The future of legal services from lawyers is going to be taking increasingly sophisticated products of AI tools and making sure that they are best use for clients. They also dig into the messy process of ushering in the AI era, which comes with a host of traps and pitfalls. Lawyers with traditional legal training and background and experience have no way of deciding or evaluating which tool is appropriate for which client use case. And there's no one out there doing it across the board. There's no good housekeeping seal of approval. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Heather Hatcher. Hello, I am Heather Hatcher. I am an attorney specializing in healthcare law working in-house at a New York City health system. I have a background in research interest in public health and health access and equity, and am chair of the New York City Bar Association's Health Law Committee, and I serve as one of three co-chairs to the Artificial Intelligence Subcommittee of the New York City Bar Association's Digital Technologies Task Force, alongside Roland Trope and Adele Hogan. I want to welcome you to What to Make of It, the great AI retooling, in which I and Roland will be the co-hosts. As AI becomes increasingly intertwined with human productivity, humans are adjusting their workflows and expectations to take advantage of the benefits of AI's speed, accuracy, and insights in performing tasks that used to be performed solely by humans. Some of the retooling in our ways of working will also involve efforts to manage the security risks inherent in and that will continuously emerge with the use of AI. Ultimately, the great retooling of our work and workplaces that will occur as we increasingly deploy and depend on AI-augmented tools and systems will raise questions, concerns, and problems. The legal profession has already begun its own kind of retooling as it incorporates AI into routine legal tasks, including legal research and motion practice, with some law firms recently licensing and developing internal proprietary systems to perform tasks previously performed by associates and paralegals. These developments raise concerns, not only about the scope of these technologies, but also questions related to professional responsibility, such as how to ensure that the retooling for use of AI will not undermine information security and compromise client confidentiality, and attorney-client and attorney-work-product privileges that depend on the preservation of client confidentiality. We hope to address some of those questions in the episodes of this podcast series. I would now like to ask my co-host, Roland, to introduce himself and our guest. Thank you, Heather. I'm Roland Trope. I'm a partner in the law firm of Trope & Schramm in New York City, where I have a national security law practice. I'm also an adjunct professor in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. We are fortunate today to have Anthony E. Davis as our guest speaker. Anthony is of counsel at Clyde & Co. U.S. LLP in its New York office. He advises lawyers and law firms in the United States and internationally in the areas of professional responsibility, risk management, 
and every aspect of the law governing lawyers. He is also author of Risk Management, Survival Tools for Law Firms. He is a lecturer in law at Columbia University School of Law, where he teaches professional responsibility issues in business practice. He is a past president of the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers and a member of the American Law Institute. Anthony received his law degree from Cambridge University and an LM from New York University School of Law. He is admitted in New York, Colorado, and as a non-practicing English barrister and a solicitor. Anthony, what interests you most about artificial intelligence? Well, it, it, this is part of an evolving process that you referred to in your opening remarks. I'm interested in everything that affects the way law is practiced and the changes that are likely to follow from the changing technologies that are all around us. And AI, of course, is the most recent uh, development, although we say it's most recent people in law have been using AI for at least 10 years in the e-discovery uh, arena, and they may not even think about that as AI, but it is. And there are, uh, as you alluded to, there are several situations, there are quite a lot of situations where there are specific use cases where AI has been developed by alternative legal service providers and by law firms. But what, of course, is interesting today is AI software that is being touted as you know the be-all and end-all of the future, the chat GPT and its rivals. And I'm fascinated by both the challenges, the problems, and the benefits and how to manage all of the above so that the clients get the best possible service and that law firms work appropriately. But I think there are huge challenges ahead for both clients and law firms and lawyers that are raised by the new generation of AI tools. Has generative artificial intelligence, such as ChatGPT and its rivals, becomes widely available? What applications are there for artificial intelligence in the legal profession, generally, and then specifically for use by lawyers and courts? I'm not sure that anybody knows the answer to that yet. I think that's a very uh, much a developing uh, process. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago in Chicago, and the GC of a major national firm, who's also the cybersecurity officer, had done something very interesting. He asked ChatGPT a set of opposite questions. Why, you know, can I use ChatGPT for legal research? Should I use GPT, ChatGPT for legal research? And then he asked the opposite question. Why shouldn't I use ChatGPT for legal research? And why can't I use ChatGPT? And he got brilliant answers that were completely opposite to both questions. The point being <coughs> that ChatGPT is not, in fact, a legal research tool. It's a language-based tool, and it feeds back based on the huge database of written materials that it has, what it thinks you want to hear. We've all read the stories about the ways in which it's inaccurate, 
And so it's clearly not yet at a point where it can be relied on by itself to do anything. On the other hand, it is clearly being used and can be used to enhance what lawyers do. And I've seen a number of articles where people say, you know, when I've got a problem, I ask ChatGPT and it gives me a really neat summary that I can work from to go to the next step. And that's in all kinds of different ways, whether it's drafting a document, creating an advice document, summarizing things that have happened in the past. So it has all kinds. There's no way that I could, we could spend the day listing the ways that it might be used. And people are finding new ways every day. The issue is how to control its use and how to manage its use with two objectives in mind to get the best possible and most accurate results and to serve clients as efficiently as possible. But we haven't got to the point where we can actually set the guardrails very clearly. We're going to continue to need to rely on lawyer judgment. Anthony, in the state and federal courts in the United States, AI has been in use for some years. In the state courts, it's used to assist judges in making decisions about whether to grant bail to certain defendants. It's used in post-sentencing decisions by state courts. And in federal courts, it's used for a certain post-sentencing, post-trial determinations. But there was no formal adoption. It just sort of worked its way into the judicial system, much in the way that it's with much more publicity happening now. But in the courts, this didn't get notoriety in the New York Law Journal and other media does it worry you that that crept into the courts first and that there wasn't a discussion either among judicial authorities or elsewhere about the ethical concerns in the way that this had been adopted? Let me go back one step before I answer that, because what we haven't done is lay the groundwork. Let's talk about the different ways AI is being used in law. It's being used for machine learning, which is at a subset of that in part is the generative AI. It's used for natural language processing, contact extraction, classification, machine translation, question answering, and text generation, which is also in part generative AI. It's being used for expert systems like the one you just described. It's being used in the law and outside the law for image and machine vision. It's being used for speech-to-text-to-speech. And it's being used for planning and robotics. And all of those different kinds of AI, as you say, have crept into use without any vetting. And I see two huge problems in the way you frame the question appropriately. One problem is there is no agency evaluating the products out there. And the bar regulators in the 50 states haven't even got a clue as to how they would regulate for quality and accuracy and avoidance of bias if they were asked to do it, but nor <coughs> is there any equivalent regulator <coughs> nationally or internationally 
that's saying we have to set standards. And this leaves a huge vacuum and a set of problems. And taking the one example that you've given, the use of some of the AI systems to make bail determinations, they've never been properly evaluated and scored to see whether they have inherent bias and how they're constructed. Is the bias, you know, why is there bias? What can be done to change it? There are suggestions that they are, in fact, full of inherent biases because AI is only as good as is any software as the programming. And the programming is only as good as the programmers. And unless there's independent verification that these things are actually fair and make decisions that are not biased, they present a huge problem. They may actually make the problem of bail determination worse rather than better. They make it easier for judges. Judge just, you know, asks the system, you know, should I grant bail or not? But if the, if the product is actually skewed because it's never been verified, classified and deconstructed, we may actually be building in bias. It's very interesting the way that you responded to that. Um, and I'd like to just sort of follow up on it. Um, Former federal judge Catherine Forrest, in her book, When Machines Can Be Judged, Jury, and Executioner, Justice in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, discusses at length the use, especially in the state courts, of the tool to predict recidivist behavior in defendants called COMPASS. And she says the studies that have been done show that it's considerably biased. And when she says bias, of course, there's two meanings here. Any AI product, even one involved in the use of astronomy where there's no human data, can have bias because it's not been properly designed. She's more concerned, of course, with the kind of bias that produces discriminatory behavior of the AI outputs. And she emphasized that it's particularly biased against black male defendants. And she points out that one of the other problems is that the data sets that Compass draws upon are geographically mismatched to the defendants they're being used to evaluate. So Compass may be drawing for some of its materials on data sets, say, in the upper Midwest, but that's a mismatch if your defendant is in Philadelphia or Los Angeles. Are you concerned about the fact that the same kind of problem may happen in law firms? And if so, since you say there's no regulatory system out there, will the, since, and since I think it's fair to say the large law firms have been financially and for other reasons in the forefront of adopting some of these AI tools, do you think they'll regulate before they themselves are stricken by the problems you started to identify for us? Well, there are two questions built into that. The bias comes from the data set used and from the wording of the programming and the questions that are asked. And both of those issues have to be addressed and have to be able to be assessed by someone before a tool is adopted. Second point, there are are several things to say. Second point, you talk about the adoption of AI by large firms. There are two kinds of adoption we should talk about. One is the relatively minuscule investment that law firms are making in developing their own products. 
most of the investment, massive investment, by startups and major existing companies in AI by the alternative legal service providers is in the billions of dollars because they can put venture capital into the development of these products. And obviously, law firms' economical structure is we have to pay out our profits at the end of the year, so we don't have money to invest in risk investments. So very few firms have enough assets to do anything more than marginal. So when they're adopting, here's the problem. I asked the innovation technology officer of one of the major UK-based international global firms, one of the great firms, if he was asked, and is he asked, and if so, how does he respond when his lawyers say, I've heard of this fabulous tool that deals with the use case that I have for my clients, may I use it? And I said, well, how difficult or easy is it for you to do the evaluation? And he said, it is an extraordinarily complex process to evaluate for the kinds of issues we've already talked about and others. And he said, I don't have the resources to do that more than three times a year. He said, I can look at three products here. I have the tools and the staff to look at, to do that deep evaluation three for three products a year. So the law firms are, you know, it's just, yes, there are firms that are using it and doing it. But what I'm trying to tell you is there's no way individual law firms can do the kind of verification, the kind of evaluation that needs to be done across the board. And I don't have a slide handy, but I was looking for it. You know, there are a whole series of questions that have to be asked when you want to adopt an AI tool. And they all involve looking under the hood. And the problem about looking under the hood is there are... I have a class, I, as you said, I teach at Columbia Law School, and I have about 70 students in my class. And I happened to ask them yesterday, I said, how many of you have an undergraduate degree in technology or computer science? How many hands do you think went up? None is right. And the fact is, in the future, every lawyer is going to have to have some degree of technological competence. You know, the ABA has a rule now that says competence under Rule 1.1 includes technological competence but they don't define what that means. And there is no way of defining what that means because it's a moving target. But the point is, lawyers with traditional legal training and background and experience have no way of deciding or evaluating which tool is appropriate for which client use case. And there's no one out there doing it across the board. There's no good housekeeping seal of approval. I'd like to coax you out even a little more on the subject because you're talking about ways in which tools are formally adopted by law firms, just as I raised the question about what, how informally courts adopted them. But I want to take us back, at least some of us back, to the time when social media was a new phenomenon. And law firms didn't adopt it, but their associates brought it in at the bottom. In other words, it wasn't a top-down adoption, it was a bottom-up. And companies started to learn that. And one of the things that surprised them was that their trade secrets were beginning to be released because 
people were posting on their social media pages things they were doing, this neat technology that they were using, or it would appear on a whiteboard behind them in a video that they posted. And gradually, people began to realize they had to respond. Now, the you know recent release of ChatGPT in a form that people can try online originally without a fee, now there's a paywall, encourages lots of young lawyers to go there and start using it, whether or not their overseeing lawyers have told them to do so. Don't law firms, even if they aren't going to adopt it, have to be concerned about the use unofficially, informally, and under the pressures of getting work out by young lawyers who may not be aware of how superficially impressive but deeply flawed the responses are and the provisions for confidentiality. I have seen a few firms say, you may not use ChatGPT or its brethren, period. That is the equivalent, if anybody remembers any English history, of King Canute about 1,500 years ago going down to the seashore and telling the tide to go back. Telling associates they cannot use the tool is red rag to a bull. Of course they're going to use it. So what you've got to do is put up guardrails and you've identified some of the guardrails. You may not, in your questioning, put in any confidential information because the creators of this product are looking at what you do. You are revealing client confidences if you place any client confidential information into a chat GPT discussion. Bad idea. So law firms are going to have to develop a set of guardrails as to how and when it can be used. And second, what has to be done with the product to make sure that it is in fact accurate, current, up to date. Somebody said they'd asked ChatGPT to create a legal argument and it actually came up with an invented case. So it's it, you cannot, the lawyers have to be trained, as you say, like with social media, what you may and may not put into the system, and secondly, what you then do with the output. Let me flip the question around, though. Do you also think that there's a possibility for law firms to rely on their young associates who, you know, don't come from the generation that you and I did, where when we would buy a product of software, we would read the manual. The manuals are no longer even delivered. Young associates learn about a product by playing with it. But what they also learn by playing with it is its flaws that can be taken advantage of if an adversary is relying on them. For example, it recently was reported that ChatGPT is posting in one user's content the, use, the content from other users. It's going to be, won't it increasingly be a, an important discovery question to find out in the development of certain products, was certain proprietary information released into ChatGPT, which has humans reviewing it, and therefore released it perhaps from the protections of trade secret law? What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, there's no doubt you're right about that. I think I read something yet the other day about the problems the Copyright Office is having in deciding what's human content and what's technological content and how to treat them differently. Are you referring to the guidance on copyright registration that the yeah. Copyright Office 
Yeah. They actually issued a very nuanced guidance, even for things that, you know, we don't have to go into the IP issues right now, but that's a worthwhile thing to look at. But they also announced that later this year, they're going to request public comment on specific issues in copyright and AI, just to fill in that blank. Absolutely. And the point is the same is true in developing a legal product, a legal output for clients. So, you know, my answer to you is yes, it's going to be an enormous issue. And again, it's part of the guardrails that firms are going to have to put on when they allow associates to use it. You know, I get worried about talking about generational change and generational usage of this stuff. My view is, well, you know, anecdotally, of course, and watching, it's true that the Generation Z folk are much more comfortable in general than their more senior lawyers. The issue is not so much comfort as expertise. What worries me about the process is, you know, lots of associates may be interested and like to play with it. But what I want is a generation of lawyers who actually understand the technological issues and why the output is risky and where it is risky and what needs to be done to correct it. I'd like to revisit law firms' incorporation of AI as they begin to develop proprietary systems. We've spoken about the challenges, but what are the benefits? How might law firms begin to either develop or hire individuals with legal and specific technological expertise? My, my crystal ball is as good as yours. But in the long run, what in my view is highly likely and probable is this. I think firms are going to find increasingly that the process that began with software that replaced 100 lawyers in a warehouse doing document review with three lawyers with expertise plus three technology specialists accomplishing the same document review instead of two months in 15 minutes uh, with the right questions, that's going to increasingly happen up the chain of legal work. All kinds of drafting, all kinds of contract evaluation, document evaluation, document preparation, litigation and transactional that used to be done by associates reviewed by partners. Increasingly, the product is going to come as output from technology. And so the role of lawyers is going to be what I call the last mile. The role of lawyers is going to be applying judgment at several steps. Judgment, as I've already said, in selecting the tools and evaluating the tools and in using the tools. And then most importantly for the client, judgment in enhancing the output so that it accomplishes the client's objectives. So I think the future of legal services from lawyers is going to be taking increasingly sophisticated products of AI tools and making sure that they are best use for clients. But it's a very different process. It's going to be a very different process than having humans develop the product. Uh, humans will have a role in developing the product. I said this to my students the other day. There are a huge number of jobs for you in technology companies, 
forget law firms, in the companies that are developing these use cases. They have to have lawyers to understand what questions need to be answered. And there's going to, you know, there are going to be lots of technology jobs in technology for young lawyers going. I think law firms will need a very different group of lawyers than they have traditionally hired. I think the whole hiring structure is going to change in the next decades enormously. But isn't it true, to recall a point you made earlier, that to the extent that young lawyers, whether or not law schools wake up to the need to teach them this, to the extent they learn about AI and how it works, how its data sets affected, how its training goes right, goes wrong, etc., won't they be better able to handle those tools, make those judgments? I noticed in a recent New York Law Journal article talking about the change in M&A due diligence when the company you're thinking of acquiring has as one of its major assets an AI product, you need lawyers who understand how to do AI data due diligence. Where is the data come from? What risks that it's violating privacy in if it's scraping data? What viol you know what you know EU laws might it be violating if it's getting data directly from persons without getting their consent? What copyright issues might it be burdening because you don't want to buy a pig in a poke? You don't want to buy an AI product that's either burdened with lawsuits or is shown to be worthless. So doesn't this, the point you say there's room in these companies, doesn't it, aren't you somehow making the point that young lawyers should undertake to learn about as much of this as they can, whether or not their law firms ask them to do it? The answer, the simple answer is yes. But, you know, uh, you know, going back to what you said about law schools, there are a few schools that are actually setting up technology programs. The biggest group of those law schools is in Australia. But there are schools in the UK and there are two or three law schools in this country that are getting closer to doing that and that are producing some lawyers with some of those skills. But you're echoing what I said earlier. There are whole. I heard a session a few weeks ago in which I can't remember whether it was father or son, but one of the Suskind self-proclaimed experts in technology and law said that he had identified 28 different technology areas of expertise that law firms will need to be able to have in order to do the things that we've been talking about: evaluating, creating, ad adapting and then using the products. And, you know, very, no in, very few individuals are going to have enough expertise to do all of those functions. But law firms are going to need people that perform those different functions. Uh, and young lawyers need to understand what they can and can't do. As clients learn about the apparent benefits of AI in legal practice, in speed, accuracy, and reduce costs for generating outputs. What changes do you foresee that clients will request or demand and what they ask from firms and lawyers? Because if any, you know, if a client was listening to this conversation, I think they would have focused on your statement about how much law firms will be able to accomplish with fewer lawyers in faster time at lower costs 
So if you can give me what I want faster, more accurately, and at a lower cost, why aren't you doing it already? Well, absolutely. And one of the big issues that already is out there, clients using their own data, the large corporations have an enormous amount of data about how much they spend on law firms and what they get in response. And there are tools out there already on the market uh, to help large corporations evaluate that data. Which firm gets me the fastest outcome? Which firm, which firm gets me the most accurate outcome in a, you know, over a period of time? And which firm gets me the cheapest outcome? And then they marry those three questions and say, okay, if I look at those three, I'm going to pick the one that's cheapest, or I'm going to pick the one that always gets the answer right, or I'm going to pick the one that gets me the fastest answer, or I'm going to get the one that comes closest to the middle. And clients have these tools and have this data, have their own database to tell them which firms to use for those points. The point is, yes, clients want fast accurate and as cheap as possible outcomes. And if law firms say, I'm going to put on a, you know, a third year associate and I'm going to get you a really good first draft complaint in three days <clears throat> and the rival firm down the road says, we've got software that produces a third year level complaint in 15 minutes. How are you, you know, which one are you going to choose? If it costs you a fortune to use the software, maybe you'll go the slow route. But in the end, that software is going to be so cheap that there's no way you're going to use the firm that's still using a third-year associate to draft. And if you try and bill, arguably you're billing an excessive bill that's unethical. Are there other ways that lawyers and law firms will need to work to allow associates and other emerging lawyers to develop the judgment that clients and practicing attorneys require instead of relying solely on artificial intelligent outputs? The only way I can answer that is to say I hope so. Let's look at something that was announced this past week. There's one of the major software providers is the owner of a product called Case Text. And Case Text was already a very interesting product, even before they enhanced it with AI. What Case Text does is if you put a brief into the Case Text software, it will evaluate whether you've missed any critical cases. In other words, it's a research tool. It's a research and evaluation tool. Now, law firms can purchase Case Text. Case Text, I don't know if they still do, but at one time, Case Text was offering it free to judges. Now, think about this. You put a brief in to court, and the judge says to her law clerk, would you run this through Case Text? And Case Text produces a critical case that the brief missed. Did the firm commit malpractice? Was it malpractice not to use that tool or an equivalent tool? Then you have the problem that if you look at the results, if you compare research results of the different research tools that are out there, you find that they have very different levels of accuracy. And so it's an, these are an enormous layered stack of problems 
that lawyers and law firms are going to have to determine for themselves. We think this research tool is the best. And, you know, the other firm down the street uses a different one. Who's going to get the best outcomes? In that situation, might there be a question of legal judgment, i.e. an individual decision not to incorporate that case? Maybe. Maybe. And this is the problem, you know. What tool should we use? And how accurate is it? And what other tools should we use to verify our results? And what will the market bear? What does the client want? And how can we hold humans to the standard of machines? And how do we allow legal professionals to be judged by sort of machine learning in terms of what their outputs are? Is that where we're headed? It is. We're heading to a place where law firm competency and lawyer competency is going to involve an evaluation of their ability to integrate, understand, and apply the technology to the client needs. That's exactly right. And that's why I say that you know, just learning on the job is not going to do it in the long run. Are you familiar with the old Second Circuit case, the T.J. Hooper Yeah, I use it all the time as an example. There's a standard of care of using technology. Right, and Learned Hand's point that even if it wasn't a custom yet for those tugboats to be equipped with a wireless or radio, it was unreasonable for them not to. Aren't you raising that risk for law firms? Yes, I teach, I use that in my classes on this, absolutely. The standard of care is going to be Are you using the right technology and are you using it properly? Well, now that you say properly, uh, there's often a a term talk when people talk about AI. Using it properly is one thing in that you used it in accordance with its instructions from its maker. But what new skills do you think lawyers will need to make optimal but responsible, ethically responsible use of AI? Because AI won't necessarily teach them how to do that. Well, that's what goes back to what I said before. I think individual lawyers are going to have an enormous problem. Until there is some agency, it's not going to be the legal regulators, we know that, some agency is actually helping them assess, going back to something we said earlier, which tools are trustworthy, and then train them on how to use them and learn the issues that Heather was talking about, the ability to evaluate the outcome and enhance the outcome for the client's benefit. And I think it's not going to be individual lawyers. I think it's going to be teams in law firms, choosing the software, evaluating the software, applying the software, and and enhancing the result. Now, we've talked about clients and counsel as if they're sort of on opposite poles. What about the challenges you think AI will pose for general counsel and other in-house lawyers at corporations and and enterprises that are the clients? I think they have double the problem because they have the same problem in-house that law firms have, and they have the problem of selecting outside counsel that meet the tests we've been talking about. Anthony, might in-house or general counsel begin to develop or use artificial intelligence on their own and avoid retaining outside counsel altogether? They already do. That's why billions with a B is being invested by alternative legal service providers 
because they can sell straight to law departments because under the ethics law, law department is a law firm. So if somebody challenges and says you're practicing law, they say, no, we're just assisting the law department practicing law. And that it's already happening. It's, you know, literally billions of dollars are being earned by the alternative legal service providers from corporations without a law firm intermediary. And, you know, I've seen projections from Thomson Reuters and others that say, you know, the rise of money being spent on those services is going to be by far the fastest growing spend, legal spend by corporations. And as a result, corporations' legal spend internally will decrease and their spend on outside counsel will decrease. So there's no doubt that goes back to the economic model issue that I raised earlier, that law firms don't have the risk venture capital that the alternative legal service providers have or can raise. And there's no doubt more and more, not just the very basic task, but more and more of this stuff is going to get done by non-law firms. Anthony, you said earlier, and you said this in response to Heather, but I took it as in response to me also, that, you know, our crystal balls are no better than yours. But I think in the field of ethics, yours is far better than ours. And you come to it with the advantage of being both a U.S. and British trained lawyers. And there are very different ethical rules, as you know, in the practice of law in Britain and the U.S. that the obvious, you know, here, we're an ethical violation if we haven't prepped our witness, our client before testimony. And in the UK, that may not be such a, a ethically valid thing. Do you foresee that there are certain ethical risks that lawyers and law firms are going to run into earlier than others? It's one thing for a client to say, gee, you know, I don't think you provided me such competent representation because I didn't like the way you used uh, AI. Well, you know, Clients always, you know, after the fact, are complaining about the output or the cost. But issues of confidentiality and waiver, inadvertent of privilege, do you think those might be some of the earlier problems? Or is there something that you think is more pressing that law firms need to be really careful of as their associates are told what to do and as associates quite naturally don't always follow it to the letter or at all? Well, I think there's no doubt that the greatest concern that law firm general counsel have is cybersecurity. And so they're going to be very concerned about protecting confidentiality and the use of these tools. And that's always that's going to be an issue today and always. As I say, I think there are billing issues. I think if you're not actually being efficient and providing the client with the best outcome as speedily and as cost-effectively as possible you're going to have an excessive billing problem. I think firms who are not even trying to use technology have basic technology competence, a competence problem. So I think it's across the board. And probably most the most difficult one is encompassed in much of what I've said, the duty to supervise. And that's implicated in what you say. How do firms supervise? What? How do they put up guardrails? How do they manage guardrails? How do they make sure that what's being done is being done properly and competently 
from the top. You know, yes, we're going to let the associates play within certain parameters, but then, you know, who at the top level is actually managing it and supervising the outcome and evaluating the outcome and who has the capacity to do that? I want to put in, though, a couple of caveats. You mentioned earlier, you know, the tool that, you know, case text that will let you know if you've missed a significant case. But the flip side of it is there is a tendency, I think rather human, that if you hear of a technology that seems faster than humans, more accurate than humans, cheaper than humans, that it must always be right when it generates an output. Is there a risk of undue reliance in the use of AI to do the right thing? A software provider in the area of developing a use case for evaluating non-disclosure agreements did a test of the accuracy of its product against lawyers. And what it found when it did the test was that the AI did a 94% accurate evaluation of NDA. Is what's in there? Is it properly written? What's missing? And 94% of the highest performing lawyers got the same result. No, the highest performing lawyers, excuse me, also came up with a 94% accuracy. But when the law firm mixed in less experienced lawyers in the field, they came up with a 67% accuracy. So the overall law firm accuracy was 85%. And the accuracy of the software was 94%. Now, your question goes to what happens if you pick a tool and it in the 6%, it misses something. Who's liable? We're going to have a lot of fun over the next 15 years figuring the answer out. One of the issues we've seen in the past is the whole issue of who's responsible in the well-established area of e-discovery. Client says, I want you to use tool A. Law firm says, we've never evaluated tool A, we've evaluated tool B, and we think it's a very good tool, we want to use tool B. Client says, you will use tool A. When they get in front of the judge and tool A missed critical issues, who's the judge going to look at? The vendor of tool A, the client, or the lawyer? It's going to look at the lawyer because that's who's in front of the judge. And so law firms are going to have huge issues and clients are going to have huge issues about selecting the tool, using the tool, and evaluating the accuracy. I want to ask you one other question following up on the impact on law firms. Because it appears to be that you're suggesting, and I find it a cogent suggestion, that law firms will be somewhat hollowed out in the middle by AI. Young lawyers who have the AI skills will be needed by the law firms. Law firms that have senior lawyers with the judgment who know how to use the outputs from AI and tell the client what use to make of those outputs will be needed. But in the middle, that progression that young lawyers used to go through where they developed that judgment, are there going to be reduced opportunities for law firms to be able to give their young associates and mid-level associates 
that training and experience that they need to develop the judgment. And the reason I say that comes in part from the experience of German doctors who have learned when they do colonoscopies with AI assisting in the image evaluation, the senior doctors still do what they've always done. Their eyes move in a sort of oval as they're looking at the images, looking to see if there's a polyp that they've missed. Young doctors who are trained with AI only look where the AI tells them to look. And there is a skill set that young doctors in Germany that are not necessarily getting, and we may find the same thing happening in law firms. Do you think that's a problem? It's a huge problem. Let's talk about hollowing out. I, what I keep saying is law firms are going to need people with different skill sets. And how they find them and whether they train them internally or whether they get them from the law schools that have actually figured out law firms are going to need this and lawyers are going to need this, I don't know. I think what we know in general historically is that technology does change the nature of the work that's needed. It doesn't usually destroy jobs. It changes the jobs that need to be done. And there will be work for lawyers, but they're going to have different skill sets than they used to have. The problem that I think is inherent in your question that nobody knows the answer to is this. Until now, since the 1960s, law firms have made their money with leverage, people. We're going to put 10 associates on this task and we pay them about one third what we bill the client for their time and we make a nice profit on the difference. That's gone may not have gone today, but it's, you can see it's going. It has to be going. So how do law firms, what new profit system, what new billing system are we going to have where both the law firms and the clients say, we're giving you and we are going to bill you for the output, the result, and not for time. And then when the firms and the clients have come to a balance about how to pay for, how to bill for that kind of expertise, then the firms will be able to say, okay, based on what we can bill, we can afford to have this level of workforce that will help us accomplish those objectives. But we haven't got that model yet. And there are very few, I don't know, there are very few firms that have got that model. And my guess is, the firms that will initially succeed are boutiques, not the giant firms that are focusing on a specific set of use cases that can make that sale to the clients. And I think it's going to be much harder for the mega firms to do that. And in terms of the hollowing out idea, for those middle mid-range attorneys who might want to gain additional skills either to support or su supplement their training in technology and or their legal judgment. What education, what is the change in the educational system that you foresee? You said a lot of law schools are slow on the uptake of the technology law, but what can they have potentially put together now for these lawyers who might be looking to increase their skills? 
I think they've got to look at what schools are actually teaching these skills and go get degrees or postgraduate degrees or do some training in that field if they want to. So generally speaking, computer scientists don't necessarily get advanced degrees, right? It's not something that has traditionally been required. But now do we see a number of JDs going back for computer science degrees or taking courses online in machine learning? I think it's some of everything. You know, there's that increasingly what you're seeing is law schools teaming up with engineering and computer science schools in their universities to give everybody the capability of getting trained in this stuff. It's happening at Northwestern. It's happening at Stanford. It's probably happening at other places that I don't know. It's happening, as I say, a lot in Australia. But I think the next generation is going to have to be looking for training. But I think it's going to come the other way around, Heather. I think people are going to realize that they're, that, you know, they want to be lawyers, but they're going to have to realize in college, we'd better take a lot of good technology stuff. I want to make one passing observation and then offer one illustration, Anthony, to what you've just said. Um, when computers and the internet became affordable by small law firms were able to compete more with large law firms because it used to be, unless you could afford a large law library and the expensive annual subscriptions to all the various services, you had to run off to the nearest law library, which was expensive in time and performance. And the computer and internet has leveled the research and fact finding. And I think that's why AI is going to be so useful initially in just gathering facts. But in terms of teaching, I just want to share with you about four or five years ago, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, where I lecture on intellectual property issues and ethics in the Department of Com Computer Science and Electrical Engineering, asked me to shift in my lectures to examples that would, to the largest extent possible, focus on AI issues in intellectual property, AI issues in ethics. And that was four or five years ago. They were not behind the curve, but it's important. It was in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science that was raised. And I think it underscores and confirms the validity of your crystal ball insight. Well, thank you. But I agree. This is the point. The computer scientists, they have a pretty good handle on what the problems are. And the lawyers need to have that same insight and that same level of knowledge and the skills to help use it. The computer scientists seem to be still grappling with many of the issues that are being raised by artificial intelligence and how they should be regulated. They want to self-regulate. Maybe they don't want the oversight because other people don't really understand. What do we think might arise in terms of the regulation landscape? Do we think lawyers should be stepping in on this, in this land of AI, just generally, or just as it applies to law firms? Too bad we couldn't show the expression on his face just now. I think the idea, we have the most antiquated regulatory system for lawyers anywhere. The idea that you split up lawyer regulation into 50 separate units, and that doesn't even count the fact that New York has four, four separate units, 
is absurd. We don't, we need national uniform regulation of lawyers to start with, and we're never going to get that. So the idea that legal regulators are ever going to be able to do more than do these broad pronouncements, you know, competence includes technological competence. Yes. And what's next? We're never, the legal regulators are never going to get beyond that. So that's why I said, you know, is there going to be any kind of good housekeeping seal of approval that clients and law firms can look at in saying this tool is good at that project and that tool is good at the next project? The Europeans are starting to look at that kind of structure, to have some kind of an agency that will set standards for the developers of these softwares so that you're going to be able to say, this software meets X standard. There's none of that. No one's even thinking about that in this country. And it's crucial. But it's never going to be the lawyers who do it. Anthony, we're at the close of our time. And I just want to tell you, I found this to be a fascinating and because of you, an illuminating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Anthony. This has been an excellent conversation. Very informative. Thank you for your time and for sharing your insights. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website, www.nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.